This is the Work Smart Hypnosis Podcast, session number 225, James Tripp on Hypnosis Without Trance. Welcome to the Work Smart Hypnosis Podcast with Jason Lynette, your professional resource for hypnosis training and outstanding business success. Here's your host, Jason Lynette. Hey there, and welcome back to the program. It's Jason Lynette here with episode number 225, a rather significant number in this five-year series that is now the Work Smart Hypnosis Podcast. And this episode this week with James Tripp is a bit of a special one, not just because of the significance of being episode number 225, but also because you can continue to listen to this program on your standard podcasting apps, if that's how you regularly listen to this program. However, when James and I connected to have this conversation, we had the cameras rolling too. So you're welcome to continue listening or stop right here, head over to YouTube or head over to the Facebook page for Work Smart Hypnosis. You can actually watch and interact with this conversation there too. And James Tripp is someone who I've known of for quite some time in the hypnosis profession, someone else who travels the world and teaching a really unique approach to how we work with hypnosis. So looking at that mindset, as he calls it, hypnosis without trance which if that's not a title that piques your curiosity, I don't know what else will. But here's a bit of a preview of where we're to go in this conversation. We're going to talk about how the work of martial arts informed the methodologies that now he brings to hypnosis, how it is that he can work with clients in a very non-formal way without the formal close your eyes, let's now begin the hypnotic proceedings, but simply to create phenomenal moments. How do we actually become appropriately, let's call it out weird in the process and utilize whatever natural trance experiences are there? How do we deal with success in the process? An amazing dialogue around how to deal with perceived, notice the word perceived, failure in terms of how we work, and really getting into the mindsets of even so far as professional growth. How it is we can take those things that we're currently working with as practitioners, completely harness what's working right now, but then realize here's something else that excites me and now go off in that brand new direction. So there's a lot of amazing takeaways in this conversation with James Tripp here. So take some notes. This is one you're probably going to come back to again. So you can find all the details, all the links we reference over at the show notes at worksmarthypnosis.com, whether it's the YouTube channel, the upcoming training events, the hypnosiswithouttrance.com website. While you're there too, check out hypnoticbusinesssystems.com. This is the all-access pass to my hypnosis training library. There's no need to have to reinvent the wheel when it comes to growing your business in this amazing 21st century world. So you're going to get some done-for-you campaigns, some step-by-step tutorials to help you to go out there and, as I like to say, make it rain. And with that, let's jump directly into this phenomenal conversation. James, thank you so much for joining me for this outstanding chat. Here we go. This is session number 225, James Tripp on Hypnosis Without Trance. What was that initial entry into hypnosis for you? Well, that's an interesting thing because there's two points that I could pick, and there's a long period of time between them. So initially, years ago, I was into martial arts, and I was into some of the more interesting Chinese internal martial arts, and I had one teacher who was really into this empty force stuff, which is knocking people over without touching them. Mm. Now, I was fascinated by this when I joined his class and I really wanted to experience it. 
And he wouldn't let me. He said, no, your chi isn't strong enough to experience this. So he kept pushing me back, pushing me back. And I'd watch week in, week out, his senior students being thrown around without any touch. And I was deeply curious about this and kind of skeptical at the same time. So yeah. these two things going on. So eventually, after I'd been going for long enough and obviously showed that I was a, you know, intended to continue studying, he invited me up to this particular spot which I could say was a spatial anchor in a lot of ways because I'd seen this action happening there. And then he drew my chi out and locked me up and threw me around and did all of this kind of stuff. And it was a really profound, really vivid experience. I mean, it was, you know, I, I was, it felt like it was really happening. It was powerful. And I went away, but my, my brain says, but is that, is it really chi manipulation or is there something else going on here? So what I found is I could actually get a lot of these effects happening in myself. And the first time I experienced an arm levitation was me doing it to myself, mm. having my chi elevate my hand. And I thought to myself, well, I can make it happen. Can I stop it? And yes, I could. I could step out of that reality as well. I mean, when it was happening, it wasn't like I was lifting my hand. It was complete, you know, that sense of non-volition. But I triggered it off. So I thought to myself, is this really chi manipulation or is it hypnosis? I, don't, I didn't know anything about hypnosis at all, apart from what people learn from movies and, and that kind of thing. So I went back and I asked him, I said, look, is this really chi manipulation or is it hypnosis? And he said, well, he said, hypnosis manipulates the chi of the mind. Mm. I'm manipulating the chi of the body. And I thought, well, yeah, nice, nice fudge. Nice <laughs> Uh, but kind of seeded this thing and, and thinking to myself, you know, there's something going on here. So that was my first experience. Now, I didn't get into exploring hypnosis at that point. And that was probably at some point, I don't know, mid-late 90s and then early 2000s. This is not particularly spectacular. I have to pause you there to go back to that, that moment of being thrown without any sort of touch. Is, right. is that something you were finally able to achieve on your own? To throw myself without any touch. Or to throw mean? someone else or... Oh, yeah. I mean, I, later on, this is an interesting thing because I became a martial arts teacher myself. Mm -hmm. And I would sometimes play around with these kind of things. But I also felt slightly disingenuous doing so because I wanted to teach people to really be able to defend themselves mm -hmm. should it come to it. And a lot of what happens within the dynamic of a class, you can get some interesting psychological effects or hypnotic effects happening. But they can also lull people into a, a misunderstanding about what might happen out in a street confrontation. Yeah, that person on the street is not the same person you've been practicing with. Exactly. Yeah. You know, um, so I, I've got, I find it kind of interesting. Actually, I, just talking about martial arts, I got into Russian martial arts, Sistema, in the late 90s as well. And they do some interesting stuff psychologically that doesn't require the same kind of prep and conditioning as the MT4 stuff that you tend to see in the Chinese martial arts. Mm -hmm. And I think it's more based on psychological principles like pattern interrupts and this kind of thing. And of course, it doesn't always work. Mm -hmm. So you've got to be ready to have something substantial right behind it. But a lot of the time, stuff like, you know, stuff that overlaps with some principles from Ericksonian work around pacing and leading and pattern interrupts and this kind of thing, you can see in a in in place within Sistema. And that, that stuff, I will say, really does work work i remember when i was running a class on this a regular weekly class in the early 2000s i had this kid come along he's about 15 years old he trained with me for about six months and he really got into that side of things 
And I had a guy visit my class who was a, a self-protection, close protection officer from the local police constabulary in Hertfordshire at the time. So he thought he knew a thing or two about fighting. And he was kind of sparring with this kid. And this kid was doing stuff this guy had not encountered before, purely on the psychological end of things, pacing and leading, pattern interrupting, just completely scrambling the guy's brain and interrupting the access to, to what he had in terms of his own capabilities. And this guy, this police guy, he was white as a sheep <laughs> afterwards. It's just all the blood had drained out of him because it was, I assume it was just a massive rocking of his world. He never came back again. <laughs> it's just, I'm curious I, to ask that the pacing and leading applied to that environment. Now, martial arts is not my background, but yeah. to, in terms of physical movement, how would you define that pacing, of le pacing and leading in that physical environment? Right. The way I would describe it best, and I actually bring this into my hypnosis skills boot camp, because the way I teach in a hypnosis skills boot camp, at least when I have the space, is hugely influenced by the Sistema training paradigm. Mm -hmm. Which makes sense to me because martial arts is a skill and, you know, the more you drill stuff, the better you get at it. And for me, hypnosis is a skill and the more you drill stuff, the better you get at it. So it makes sense there'd be an overlap in the training formats. However, in this instance, pacing and leading is to do with you're going to move at the same time as somebody. You're going to flow mm -hmm. with their movement as they come in. If you're flowing with their movement as they come in, if you've. And you learn to do this unconsciously. You can't do this consciously. It's too complex. You drop in with their breathing. Any sudden start that you do, boxers do it. Good yeah. boxers do it. Boxers will use feints and this kind of thing. But to set a feint up, they've got to trick their opponent's brain into thinking they know what's going on mm -hmm. and then change something and then change it back. So basically like establishing a rhythm, establishing a pattern, but then interrupting that right. and using that as the entry point. Right, right. Yeah. And, I, and I suspect I'm... I'm you know, I love the Sistema because they really lean into that. But anyone who starts to get experience, say, in sports fighting, in ring craft, they're going to start developing these capabilities as well. I fought, fought this guy once who was a really good, he was a European kickboxing champion. And he was absolutely amazing at non-physically, just through his positioning, timing, this kind of thing, putting people exactly where he wanted in the ring. It was insane, the level of skill <laughs> that this guy had doing this and of course it's all non-verbal stuff and for me there's a huge overlap with that and what's going on with hypnosis i mean yeah look at the standard rapport strategies that if we're in our head going i need to sit like you are i need to move like you are we're now so completely out of the process that we're just so completely detached if we're doing these things because that's what's normal that's what's the natural interaction that's where we're actually in sync with somebody right absolutely and i think you know and that takes some skill with with martial arts you have to get out of your head right because if you're in a sparring situation and you're and you're all up in your head it doesn't last long you're being clipped it's you're being gonna be a fist in your head yeah <laughs> yeah so I, I think there's you know that's really good for helping people get into flow and start to build response sets and skill sets into the body mm -hmm. and and for me with hypnosis I had the same view. I want response sets and skill sets in my body. I want to be able to be in the moment with somebody, work with what's coming up from them. I see hypnosis as a co-creation with the mm. person I'm working with. You know, we're working together. Nice. It's their neurology that's creating the experience. And I can't deny or reject 
whatever's coming up for them that has to be accepted and utilized and led in a useful direction. Mm -hmm. So a lot of that for me, the way I think about hypnosis probably comes from my martial arts background to a great degree. Yeah. I love that concept of co-creation. Is there a, is there a story of, let's say working with a client where that really can be solidified in terms of describing how that process played out? Yeah, um, there are actually, I was just, cause I'm doing a lot of editing at the moment of old video footage and there's a piece i've got it up on youtube the thing is about youtube is stuff gets lost on there it yeah. totally get buried i've got like i don't know 300 videos 350 videos on there but there's a, a piece from probably about six seven years ago of me doing a name amnesia with somebody and i'm running a sequence because in my approach to hypnosis i'm known as the hypnosis without trance guy and what that means is i generally don't bother with trance inductions so just go straight in with some simple phenomenon usually an idiomotor phenomenon of some kind and then ladder it up to progressively more challenging stuff for example amnesias or hallucinations this kind of thing so i'm working with this guy and I, he's responding beautifully to i think i set it up with a foot stick to start with and he responds absolutely beautifully he's really in there his foot's solidly stuck and then i go to segue into a name amnesia and I set it up the way, way I'm doing it in my kind of standard way back then. And I said, so what happens when you try and say your name and it's gone? Try and say your name and it's gone. He looks at me and says, Andy. <laughs> so I said to him, I said, that's right. And where is that name now? He said, well, it's up here again. I said, that's it. So we'll take it all the way out, send it away. And, and it's gone. And what happens when you try and say your name and it's gone? Andy. <laughs> <laughs> so I I went for about three takes with this, and he, the name amnesia wasn't going at all. So I kind of segued back into because I never unstuck the foot. You mm -hmm. see, this is a this is a thing that I would do. I like to. There's the idea of nested loops from NLP and Ericksonian stuff. I like to do nested phenomena. Nice, yeah. So I'll leave one open and then open up the other one. So I said, "How's that foot?" He said, "Still stuck." I said, "And the foot's still stuck." As the foot sticks and the name's gone, try and say that name, Andy. Right? So it's just, <laughs> it's just not happening. And I unstuck the foot and I said, thank you very much. And I said, I'm just curious, what, what was it like when the foot was stuck? And he said it was really powerful, really profound. And, and he said these words, cerebrally tactile. Nice. Or something like that. And, and I said, right. And I just asked him all his words to describe the foot stick. I said, so if your name were to disappear now in a cerebrally tactile way, and I just fed back in, I've got this on video, mm -hmm. all the kind of language he's used around the, the foot stick. I said, so what happens when you try and say that name and it's gone now in a cerebrally tactile way? And he's <laughs> gone straight out. So one of the things that I often do is I will explicitly ask for feedback. What's happening for you? If something's not going in the direction that I want first time, mm -hmm. I will get feedback from people and I will use what they offer in terms of feedback to create what you might call custom suggestions or this sort of thing. And generally speaking, that works very well. And I think a lot of people, one of the things I advocate is that people do this. A lot of the time people learn a recipe and they follow the recipe and it doesn't work and they go, uh, or they get the phenomenon and because they've got it now, the intention is how quickly can I get out of it in right. case it doesn't continue to work. But to engage yeah. in that dialogue, 
you're actually driving them deeper into that phenomenon by getting their representations as to what that feels like. Right. And, yeah. and if somebody is experiencing it, I'll, I'll say, so what's happening now? Because mm -hmm. I like to hear. And yeah. when they give me the language of what's happening, I feed it right back in with some some intensifiers. So I like to use phrases like and becoming even more fully absorbed in this experience of and feed their yeah. language back in just to kind of take them more in. So I, I've got this. One of the things, because I, I don't tend to work with trance induction, people are often in an interactive state. They're not sort of zonked out mm. so much. So I keep the interaction going the whole time through. And that gives me a rich seam of material coming back from them that I can utilize to take them more fully into richer experiences. I mean, even my simple rule is, if in doubt, I elicit the experience they're having right now, regardless of what it is. And I will take them more deeply into it, whatever it is. So even if someone's got an experience of, like, it feels like my hand is lifting, but then I wonder if I'm lifting it, for example, if somebody said that. I'd say, so notice wondering if you could lift it. Nice. And whereabouts is wondering when you're wondering if you can lift it. And I usually will gesture up to their head because I know like, it's going to be somewhere in their head. And they'll go, well, up here. And I'll say, so it's up. And wondering and noticing, wondering now more fully. And I just take people like wherever they're going, let's go into it even more. And that often creates the opportunity to kind of segue out into something else again. Yeah, which the beautiful ability to loop those moments and just continuously, I love that, the feedback, what they're experiencing. The, the style of approach, this hypnosis without trance, where did that originally come from? Was it necessity? Was it curiosity? How would you describe it? It's kind of curiosity as much as anything. And partly, I'll admit, just stylistic preference. Yeah. You know, it's easy to say, oh, this is superior because of that or that. Yeah, actually, it, it kind of suits me more as, mm -hmm. as a person and my character. So the story is, is I originally trained in NLP. I was very much into NLP for about a five-year slot. Even before I officially did an NLP training, I was madly teaching myself and using everything that I learned. And then I did an NLP training and I loved it so much. I did my master practitioner afterwards and I wanted to use it to make a living because my other, my real job sucked. And I, so I love this stuff. <laughs> oh, I, I have make, to ask, what was that old path? The old, my old job, I worked in local government. I was just doing said. <laughs> pointless stuff in local government. Yeah. It was just not ever going to go anywhere. So you know, doing work that somebody had invented just mm -hmm. to have work done because there was a person to do some work. That's where. <laughs> that was, so by the I, way, the moment of losing all rapport. When I moved into this office, I'm at the closing. and I'm going, how much of this paperwork is to validate jobs rather than actually buy the yeah. office? And all smiles went away. And that was the end of it. <laughs> right, right. So, you know, that, that I was I was that guy who had a job for because there was the budget for a job, yeah. probably. Although, I mean, so, look at look at the beautiful correlation of that, that so much of the work of our profession, I'd say really up until the last 10, 15 years or so, has been this procedural, this is the way you're supposed to do it. You know, I mine is, I will make use of that deep trance state, but then come out of it, then have the interaction as that interlude. And, and even to hear people in a meetup group go, yeah, but you're going to wake people up if you do that. Mm. Having to go... Okay, let's start over. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the, just this nature that to, to break those norms and go, well, what happens if I pull this element out? What happens right. if I pull this thing out? Does everything remain standing? Could I make it even stronger 
without having this perceived foundation that I, I was told has to be there. No, right. step A has to go before step B. Otherwise, it's not going to work. Yeah. Yeah. And try it. What happens when you do something different? I mean, right. I love to try stuff. You know, so I had a guy the other day who reminded me that he'd never experienced any hypnotic phenomena until he worked with me. And I said, oh, how did how did how did I do that? How did we do that? Because I couldn't remember. I couldn't remember the particular <laughs> session with him. And I did this piece. and I remember doing it now. It was an idea I was experimenting with. I think I did a thing with a phone. I said, what's that? He said, well, it's my phone. I said, so when you say the words, my phone, where are those words? He said, well, and, and I pointed his mouth. He said, well, they're coming out my mouth. I said, and where are they before they come out your mouth? And they said, in my head. I said, so notice them in your head and look at that and point it to his phone and notice the space between the words and the ideas and that. And as you notice the space, go all the way into the space between the ideas and that and staying in the space between what happens when you try and say that was what, what, what that is when you're in the space between. <laughs> so I took him right into the space between. Now, this was a pure experiment. I'm just curious. Mm. This seems like a good idea. Let's play with it. Let's see what happens. It's a pure experiment. And I think one of the things for me is I'm, I'm really willing to, a lot of people who are in hypnosis, in the hypnosis game, they're desperately afraid of things not working. They're desperately oh, yeah. afraid Absolutely. of failure. Right? I, I, I don't mind. I'm happy with whatever happens because I'm conducting experiments most of the time. I'm curious what happens if we do this? What happens if we do that? What happens when? And sometimes what happens is people look at me like I'm an alien or something and go, you know, what the hell are you talking about, man? You know, for goodness sake. So I'm very happy to experiment and explore, which so is let's not. Say, let's, let's say it's that therapeutic environment. You're working with someone, yeah. you're coaching them. And let's say here comes the moment that the hand is on the table yeah. and try to lift it and they just lift it. Yeah. So in that kind of situation, I'm just going to say something like, right. Because you're not going to believe your hand is stuck to the table just because I say, are you? Nice. That would be crazy. And they go, well, no. Yeah. And I'll say, so you're able to bring a powerful skepticism. And that is a useful thing. But what I'm going to suggest is there's something you haven't been bringing a powerful skepticism to yet. Which is, mm. and I'm going to go into the beliefs that are holding their problem in place. So... One of the ways I approach change work is I'm constantly looking to separate people from their beliefs about what's going on. Mm -hmm. So they've got space for new things to generate. So if stuff, stuff I'm creating works, then that's great. I'll leverage the fact that it's working. Yeah. If it's not working, I will leverage the fact that it's not working. Yeah. Oh, it's that beautiful thing that the client coming in, and chances are us in the stream of consciousness deal with what emerges style. As they're coming in, they don't know this is exactly what next step is supposed to be there. So yes. it's where I keep having to drill in for new students. It's only a mistake if you say the word whoops. Yeah. It's only a mistake if you go, well, that's not how it's supposed to go. And I was going to ask your opinion on something. There's a beautiful thing that happens in these moments of phenomenon. I'll give you a story to illustrate it. I'm running an event a couple of years ago, and I'm now suggesting this one person isn't going to be in the room. The more you look around the space, you won't find them at all. And mm. what's happening is, and this is a guy who eventually became a friend, and now I can phrase that he has the same twisted sense of humor that I do, because his mind is filling in the gap to go, 
I'm going to get to tease her tomorrow that she missed this demonstration. She was mm. talking about, which was never part of my suggestion, but I love that aspect of asking for the user experience. What's going on there? What does that feel like? What do you think is often going on where let's label it as that conscious unconscious divide if we want to follow that model in terms of we're now suggesting the space between try to find the name for the phone it goes further away try to find your name what do you think is actually happening within the mind that's making these magical moments happen well i mean i have a model i call the hypnotic loop which i've been using for a long time and it's not true it's a model it's a way of making sense of things yeah but it's a loop and it's got beliefs at the top and then it cycles round to imagination and it cycles round to physiology and it cycles round to experience. Now, I've looked at these labels and in a lot of ways I don't like them. So belief could be any kind of understanding, any kind of meaning making that's going on. Imagination, the next point on the loop, is any kind of movement of mind, any kind of mind flow, cognitive processing. Now, we're moving our minds all the time and creating our experience all the time, moment by moment by moment. We're just doing it along an unconscious set of rules we call reality. And people will follow the rails of their own reality, how they've got them organized by default. They never think about it and they're in an experience all the time and they swear how I'm experiencing this is how it is. But the mind is making that experience. You speak to neuroscientists and say, is the world actually as we perceive it? And they're going to say, no, it's not. The mind is making it up a certain way. As one neuroscientist said, I wish I could remember who it was. The world is illusory. So if you see that bus coming towards you, don't take it literally what you see, but do take it seriously. Yeah. So, you know, it, it doesn't really look like that. So we're constantly making the world up. And I think that when people are... People can choose to move their minds in different ways. They just usually don't. They can also be encouraged to move their minds in different ways. They can be facilitated in moving their minds in different ways. And you don't always need to set this up with hypnosis as well. I, I've just in January, I stopped doing this. I've stepped back from it because it was taking up too much bandwidth for me. But I worked with military veterans for two years, almost all of whom had a PTSD diagnosis. And a great number of these guys, I was not billed as a hypnotist for them. They just, they say, you're going to meet James. James is a coach that can help you out with some of your experiences and going beyond them. I would regularly do things like you just sort of say, you know, so there's a part of you that, that wants X and they go, uh-huh. And I go, if I were to reach in now and take that right out so it's here. Now, a lot of these guys, there's an interesting correlation. A lot of the guys with PTSD are really hypnotizable. Yeah. And I don't know what comes first, the PTSD or the hypnotizability. I wonder if being naturally good hypnotic subjects can unfortunately predispose people. I mean, you look at the classic statement that here's two people in an event and one takes on that condition. The other one kind of leaves it and goes, wow, I'm lucky. Mm. That there's some level of receptivity that may suggest why this one you know, and what was that predisposement? What was that experience before that made them hold on to this? Right. So to look at, I, as much as I think we can look at any client and go, here's how they're already doing hypnosis. So let's utilize what's there and shift it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that's definitely in the mix. I, my suspicion is a tendency to be able to vividly absorb oneself in mind made experiences. Yeah. Probably 
you know, certainly if, if, if an event happens, if you want to get haunted by the memory of it, being a good hypnotic subject might be a good way of doing that. <laughs> it's a positive way of phrasing it. <laughs> yeah. So, so, you know, so I would you know, pull things out and, and do quite magical things and get feedback like, going, what the hell is that? How are you doing that? Mm-hmm. What would be that reaction when you'd, when you'd reach in and grab? What would be their feedback in that moment? Because I'm looking, I'm looking at them. When I do something like that, I'm looking for the nonverbal tells that they are what I would call psychoactively engaged. Because mm. if, I, if I reach in and I pull this thing out and they're just going, well, you know, and, and, and they're paying no attention whatsoever. But I, I reach in, I pull it out and I pull it out in such a way that my attention is on it and I want to see their attention following it. So I want to know that they're like looking at it. And if they're looking at it with eyes like saucers and I say, so when, what is it that you see? You know, and I ask and I'm going to get, get this, this interaction as I'm manipulating stuff. Mm-hmm. I want to see that they're continuing to interact with the manipulations. Now that stuff was already organized in a certain way outside of consciousness. So far as I'm concerned, they're not used to, what's different is they're not used to having somebody do this. They're not used to having somebody take an element of their experience. And I as, bet so even, even more stuff. so in that environment too. Right. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's, it's an unusual thing. And they'll start, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of one guy in particular who was just like, that's, that's incredible. How are you doing that? Mm-hmm. And I said, I'm not doing it. You are yeah. doing it. And you have this capacity to do this and do these things. And maybe up until now, you've been perhaps more the victim of this capacity than the master of it. So, you know, I will start to demonstrate that they have choices in what they can do and maybe have them relate to their experience a little bit differently. With uh, the military guys, in the two years that I was working with those guys, I think one time only I actually used the H word mm-hmm. and mentioned hypnosis. Uh, but because of the way I work with this, this sort of hypnosis without trance, I don't do the trance induction. It's easy for me to do that. I don't, you know, I don't have to frame it as hypnosis because it can just sort of segue out from a regular conversation. Yeah. Uh, I'm just going to start working. I'm always paying attention to how they're spatially organizing the metaphors they use. So I'm often just going to just start moving stuff about or taking it or interacting with it. Yeah. Um, I'd share there's a beautiful thing that comes out of that, that years ago, there was an issue I was running into it sometimes with clients. This goes back like four or five years ago where if I had given an unintentional transition, part of their mind flipped into to go, okay, this is where we're now beginning the hypnosis, which in some mm. ways that can be extremely beneficial. In this point, they were kind of now sitting there zoned off and not quite going the direction of the actual change process. Right. So there's something to be said, and I don't yet have clever language around this, but the, the power of the phrase that different is better than better. To begin right. something in a slightly provocative format, whether it's reaching in and grabbing it, whether it's uh, just hold your arm out for a second and just focus on the thing getting stronger as we chat for a few moments mm. of just to give ourselves license that because they're coming into an environment that's different than what they've done before, I don't feel enough of us are really utilizing that as a real strength to really build that hypnotic state rather than think, oh, in 45 minutes after we're done chatting, then I'll see if I can hypnotize this person. Which yeah. is the beauty of that without trance mindset. Right. And and I like to start to shift things and move things. I love working with spatial organization. Yeah. 
because you can you can just weave it into conversation. Yeah, how so? Well, I mean, you know, there's an example, or e- even like classic things, like somebody's looking up. I say, so what is it you're seeing up there? Mm-hmm. And the, you, up they go, and do they look? Do they look? And then I start interacting with that up yeah. there, as if it's there. And this is one of the things that I do a lot, and I encourage people to do when I'm training, because because the way I work. I'm working eyes open a lot of the time. So it becomes much more significant when you're working eyes open with people where you're looking Mm -hmm. and how you're interacting. So when I'm teaching people to do things, like even something like uh, I often teach people to stick an object, a coin, a card, a pen, something like this, just a small piece. And when I'm teaching people, it's eyes open, the person's fixed on a point. Often people are staring the subject in the eyes which is distracting. It's pulling them into this social exchange, right? And what I'm often teaching people is, look, there's a time to get rapport and there's a time to step back from social rapport and start, you know, getting them to get into rapport with something, with an experience. So I talk about taking a shared perspective and I'll teach people, look, where do you want them to look? Where's the action happening? You look there too. Mm. You see the action happening there too. If I want to get a hand sticking, I want to look at that person's hand and I want to experience it sticking and I want to relate to it as if it's sticking with everything, all my nonverbals, everything. I was bringing in the the entire experience's suggestion. I go back to the the classic quote from Jean-Eugène Robert Houdin, who Houdini became the namesake of. And, And the quote was that the magician is the actor playing the role of the magician. That if right. I'm thinking the coin is hidden be- behind this thumb, and it's a matter of how I flip it out so you make it appear, I'm now just the technician. I'm now basically a juggler versus if I'm looking at that pocket of air, and I firmly believe that that coin is in that pocket of air, and I just have to pluck it out, and that's what makes it appear. Right. If I'm believing that, I'm now telegraphing that with everything in my presentation, the audience is more likely to go there with me. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And this is a huge thing. I mean, again, so... I've got the martial arts in my background, but I also for a while was a semi-professional close-up magician. Mm-hmm. So as a semi-professional or as any kind of close-up magician, when you get into the skill of that, you start becoming acutely aware of where people's attention is for a start, you know, really monitoring that moment by moment by moment. And you also become quite adept at leading people's attention, mm-hmm. shifting it from place A to place B. And for me, this is all about nonverbal suggestion, shifting attention in this way. So going back to that point about in conversation, how do you start eliciting responses? You see, a lot of people, when they're learning hypnosis, they worry, is it working? Is it working? Is it happening? And my answer to that is stop asking, is it happening? And start asking, what is happening? Nice. And what happens when? So if I say to somebody, you know, and I direct their attention over there, does their attention go over there? This is a good piece of information for me because I know they're responding to suggestion. If, if their attention is shifting as I'm directing it, they're going to be in, on a conscious level unaware that I'm directing their attention in various ways. But I'm aware of what's going on and I'm building a response set and I'm monitoring whether they're responding. And that's going to inform me as to whether I want to now go for something bolder. Am I getting the sense this is a responsive person? Am I leading this dynamic? Do I want to go for something bolder and suggest something that is more outside the bounds of their 
anticipated reality. Mm-hmm. One of the good things about formal hypnosis, I think, is it does create this border that says you are now exiting normal reality. Mm-hmm. We are now entering the hypnosis zone. Right. The same as the lights go down in the theater. Clearly now this thing is beginning. Right. And I, I think that can be a really useful thing in helping people transition because I think my view as a hypnotist is, is, is I'm about taking people outside of their everyday experience into an unusual experience, into a strange experience. And if they're too bound up by the rules of what's happening right now, then they're not necessarily going to allow that to happen. So a formal induction can act as an excellent marker. So we are now crossing the threshold. Or you can sort of take it a bit further and a bit further and a bit further. You can pace and lead it more. And I think this one of the things that, that is a skill that I took, took a long time to develop, Melissa Tears often points this out, is what I call a willingness to be weird. Yep. <laughs> because if you're not willing to be weird, then all you're doing is conforming to the rules of everyday conversation. Otherwise, you're being weird. And if you're going to conversationally start or more eyes open without a clear marker like a trance induction, if you're going to start moving people into this crazy headspace where strange things are happening, you have to be a bit bold. You have to be willing to break the rules of everyday conversation. But you don't necessarily want to break them too abruptly. Otherwise, you might yeah. just terrify somebody and they go, well, it's Whoa. like what you, what you mentioned earlier about the mindset of the magician and the entire concept of misdirection is already misdirection because mm. for misdirection to be effective, we have to be directing attention at all times. Otherwise I'm in the middle of doing something and something off to the side suddenly falls over. That's a very false experience, mm. but you're right in terms of if I can get their eyes to move this direction, which, you know, looking at that one ahead principle and magic by the time the magician appears in the back of the audience after having disappeared on stage. Mm. There were so many elements that were at play to make that moment work and make it impressive to turn around and go, oh, there they are, mm. to look at phenomenon. And, and tell me your thoughts on this, because I found that if I'm working in the mindset that I need to see that reaction is already there before mm. I invite them to notice it. Right. That's yeah. where I'm finding this greater efficacy of going, that thing is already stuck. And to bring it into a sales principle, to only ask for the sale when I know the person is willing to buy, yeah. which really builds this, which builds this cool balance of this almost no fail environment, because I can see that arm is already stiff and rigid. Mm. I can see that their mouth is already salivating and they're experiencing dryness, which now means I can say, become aware of that thirst for water. We can already stack it in such a way, but we're, we're, we're pacing the entire experience. So by the time we're going for that magical effect, we've already got it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, to me, that's a smart way of working. I had a mentor years ago for coaching and his view, this is probably comes from the kind of world of sales, but he showed this fantastic video. You know, you sometimes get the camera goes around the arena at a sporting event and then zooms in on a cup or someone's arranged to have something happen. There's this, the camera zooms in on this guy with, with his girlfriend and he pulls out a ring and gets down on his knee and offers her the ring. And it's like the camera zooms in and there's obviously like thousands of people and everyone on TV watching there with the ring. And she just slaps him and runs off. <laughs> and it's like, uh, Get the, the result the mes- before you go for the result. <laughs> yeah. The, the message is and what, what my mentor was saying. He said, you know, you, you ask you ask someone to, you know, if they want to be your client when you already know the answer, that's mm-hmm. the smart thing. You know, they're going to say yes. Just the same as if you ask someone to marry you, if you're smart, you know, the answer is 
already yes ahead of time before yeah. you ask. So I'm, I, you know, I love that idea. I'm a big fan of that. One of the, th- I often teach people little tells. Like for example, if I'm doing a stick, I mentioned the stick that I do. I get someone to hold an object, and I'm picking a, I'm looking at the nail bed. So as I, I will say, I'll give a suggestion. I'll say, as you feel your fingers gripping the card, and I choose the word gripping quite mm-hmm. deliberately. I don't say as you feel your fingers holding the card. Yeah. I say gripping the card. And I say as you feel those fingers gripping the card and gripping the card now more fully, more solidly, I want to see that nail bed go white. I want to see the blood go out of the nail bed, which is what happens when somebody squeezes. And as I see that, I know they're responding to the suggestion. I know I'm gold. Everything's happening. Everything is good. I've done no challenge yet. I've not set up any pass fail. I can see what's happening right there. Same as when I do a foot stick. So if I'm doing a foot stick, I've got someone got their foot out in front of them and I place my hand lightly on their shoulder. Now I used to do this. So if they started to break the foot stick, I could physiologically disrupt them, not by pushing back, but by lifting up slightly. Mm -hmm. But I haven't done this for years because I stopped using it that way. I just use the light touch up there so I, and I have them look at their foot and I say, as you feel that foot sinking more fully nice. into the ground, as I say this, I feel the, 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 the light pressure I've got get lighter because the, the direction of travel of their physiology is down there. Their whole system is moving down into the foot that's sticking into the ground. I know they're responding. So I'm fine. There's no risk in me saying, and it continues to stick more fully. Try and unstick it as it sticks more fully into the ground. I know I'm good to go because the information was there before, you know, it was brought into the, the sphere of consciousness of either them or the, the observers or, or whatever's going on. So, I, you know, I like to do things like that. And this is the thing. If people tune into this kind of thing, people are so often so concerned about the risk. It, it is pretty much risk free. Right. Yeah. You know, there's you're, nothing- you're seeing that arm already extending and stretching and locking in place. You know it's already stuck. You're seeing the eyelids squeezing all the way down. You know you've already got that. Right. There's there's no risk. And I think what happens, I'm guessing, when people are learning, and I'm sure this was true for me as well, is people get often too hung up on the recipe. They're trying to remember the words of the recipe. They're doing something I call they're in the get-through zone rather than the get-into zone. So they're trying to get through the sequence or get through the induction or get through and everything's a race to this point, and they're trying to get through all the steps and make sure they've ticked everything in the as they go. So, is the solution to, to the be more in the moment to put more of these tells in the process? How would you define the solution to that? Well, my my principle is get into versus get through. Yeah. So, if I'm teaching people to do some sort of stick, I'll say get into the stick, not try to th- get through the sequence. If you're really getting into what's happening. And you're getting the person into what's happening, into this moment of what is happening. You just keep taking people more and more into the moment of what's happening. And, you know, that moment gets richer. That moment gets deeper. You become more, more committed in your responses yourself, in your directions. So, for example, I'm looking at a foot stick and I want them to get into that foot being stuck instead of me trying to get through a sequence of suggestions that's supposed to magically lead to the foot being stuck. So everything that I'm doing is supporting that. I'm getting into it. I'm looking down at their foot. I'm yeah. moving my body in a way that says stuck because all the time I'm working with eyes open, everything I do counts. 
so I pantomime a lot of stuff and, and that kind of thing because I'm getting into it. Like if I'm doing a hand stick with somebody and their hand's stuck down, by the time I know it's stuck, I'm going to say, take hold of your wrist, take hold of your wrist. And then I'm going to go take hold of your wrist, really try it, really. Yeah. And I'm pantomiming the struggle and everything myself because all of this is taking somebody into the experience like a magician takes someone into the experience they're not rushing to get through the trick a good magician isn't they're taking them into every moment every part of the experience like if you value everything that you're doing in a sequence instead of seeing most of it as being about getting to this amazing point at the end i think that creates a far richer experience and is more conducive to engagement for the person that you're working with that's my get into principle rather yeah. than get Principle. So now that we've got them into that phenomenon, we've got them into that magic moment, how do you classically then make that pivot into the actual change process? Again, now their their eyes are open, something magical is going on that's, I love the word weird, <laughs> something's yeah. going on that's outside of the ordinary. W what tends to be that pivot for you in terms of now linking that to why they're in front of you, why they're there for that coaching experience? Okay, so I mean, here's the thing I'll say right now. I, I'm not saying I don't do that kind of phenomenal work with clients because mm -hmm. I do occasionally. So it's not true to say that I don't, but it's not a standard thing for me to do with people. The, the times I'm usually doing that kind of stuff most these days, I used to do it when I was doing that kind of stuff when I was doing close-up magic and doing street hypnosis and that kind of thing. Now I'm mostly doing that when I'm training people. Mm -hmm. that's, that's the truth of it. When I'm with a client, it's much more likely that I'm just going to start organically working with what they're bringing rather than me imposing something like a foot stick or a hand stick or a name amnesia or something like that, unless I see a moment to creatively utilize that in a meaningful way yeah. up front. So in that case, I mean, one of the things that I might do is I might do a book and balloon test with somebody if I think they're a good hypnotic responder. So I set them up, book and balloon, and I see the hand dropping and I'll really lean into that and say, so, you know, and, and feel, you can feel that, right? And they're like, yeah, yeah. And I go, you can feel it. It's really happening, right? It's really happening. And they're like, yeah, I can feel it really happening right now. It's real. That hand's moving. Yeah, yeah. I say, except it's not. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and they go, <laughs> pull the rug out from under. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I will literally pull the rug out from under them. I say, except it's not. Mm-hmm. Your mind made the whole thing. But didn't it really seem real? Oh, I love that, yeah. And they go, yes. And then I, I anchor that up. And then later on, they, when they start getting into the, the personal trance that's a problem, they go, well, I just can't seem to do X, Y. And I say, that's right. And that, doesn't that really seem real? And they, and they go, yeah, I, I see it is. I see it is real. It's just every bit as real as that book. So... Now I've kind of got this, I've, I've said something about the vividness of mind-made experiences. Yeah. I've anchored it to the idea that that's real, that's real. So then I can use that to, to start, start busting their problem trance. Because I tend to view people's problems as largely trances. It's a particular, mm -hmm. it's, it's, that's a reality their mind has made and become convinced is real. And they're not seeing any other ways through or ways out. So I want to loosen off their, their beliefs about what's currently going on much of the time to create space to, to move new things in. So I tend to use phenomena in, in a way that I would call meaningful. Or I, I attempt to whenever I have a mantra that I say to myself, make it meaningful. Yeah. Make it meaningful. 
because a lot of the time people will get into hypnosis, they go, well, I'm a hypnotherapist, so I'm going to do an induction. Why are you doing an induction? Because I need to put them into trance. Why? Well, so that the change work works, so they respond to suggestions. Yeah, but what if it meant something? Right, yeah. Right? What if this induction meant something? What I, would you I, I, sure, I don't forget if we've had this chat when we connected before that that's kind of what got me out of the magic industry originally. That, that was a right. hobby. I basically paid my way through college by doing magic shows. And uh-huh. the whole thing was, if I could really do this trick, why would I carry around a pack of cards? Right. If I could yeah. really make money appear at my fingertips, why would it have to be 1890s Morgan silver dollars? Oh, because yeah. they're worn down smooth and they don't make noise. It's like, no, that's the technique. <laughs> yeah. So to look at hypnosis from the same mindset, well, why am I going to have you count backwards from 100 and let the numbers go? Well, you've yeah. been struggling with this issue most of your life. Wouldn't it be great if you could relax this issue away as if it wasn't there before? I'll show you how. And now we're into that Elman counting backwards moment, but now we've motivated it, but also because we've dangled a carrot at the end of it as to here's what this represents. Mm. I don't have to troubleshoot that at moment anymore because yeah. now there's a logical reason as to why we're doing this, let's call it out hypno stunt, because now yeah. it's linked to the change. The same right. as yeah. I love that nuance of going, you know, that's not the, the pull the rug out from under. You can't mm. bend your arm. Yeah, you can bend it. Good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I, this, this is a, and I'm not saying it's an easy thing. It's to me, it's a process that never stops. Yeah. It's like a test that I keep bringing to myself because it's easy to pick up bits of business from people and go, Oh, that's a cool thing. I'll start doing that. Okay. But why, <laughs> what does it mean? What are you, how are you using it? So I, I like to bring that back to myself. You know, what does this mean? What can I offer somebody? You know, I'm, when, I'm are, doing, when, are you, when are you doing that experimentation? How does that experimentation mindset come into it? I, I experiment a lot when I'm training people mm-hmm. and I'm quite open about that. Yeah. Some, you know, I'll, often I'll say, uh, you know, at the end, particularly at the end of a, a session and there are some people that want to hang on, I'll say, okay, we pretty much finished up, but there's something I'm curious about who wants to come up and, and try something. So I'll, I'll do, uh, I'll, I'll try something out with people in that circumstance. I used to with people in my everyday life, friends and family and stuff like that. But they don't want that. They don't. <laughs> they they don't want me to be kind of like trying to use them all the time as, as experimental fodder. Although there was a phase in my life where that was a useful and necessary thing. Mm-hmm. I occasionally play around with clients with that kind of thing, but I tend to allow myself to go into flow. I always have this thing where I I part allow myself to go into flow, but I will disrupt that from time to time to stop myself going on autopilot and yeah. always tending to do the same things. So I, I will bring new ideas in, but I do spend quite a lot of time in my own head playing with kind of geeking out about new possibilities. And that's when I go, right, the next client I see, I'm going to just take, I'm still going to do all the stuff that I do to help yeah, them out. But I'm yeah. just like do a little bit of, I'm going to just try this idea out and see what I can get happening with that this. Is, that is one of those aspects that as I've done 200 plus of these over the last five years, that aspect of that willingness to go into a session and yes, let's go in there and let's give the client our full attention. Let's go in and really help them facilitate this change. But also at the same time to occasionally have the moment, mine was about six, seven years ago going, I never do arm levitation just because mm. I've not motivated it. So this week, every session I'm doing arm levitation and I have to figure out why I'm doing it with that person. Yeah. And, it, yeah. It, and the accidental, you know, side effect of that was going, oh, here's the way that I now handle a parts therapy variation 
that's now logical, is kinesthetic, gets a great reaction, gets the response in motion, yet it came from just that willingness to play. I think when I had Scott Salen on years ago, he told the story of going, I was going to tell every client that week the same metaphor story, but mm. I had to make it work. Mm. Mm. Just that yeah, willingness to, to experiment. But again, as long as I can make it fit within the context of this, I keep mm. finding that as a as a nuance between those that are still bound by protocol and process versus those that are right. much more. I love that you know concept of flow of just getting into that experience and saying, I'm going to make this work. Right. I think that's a really interesting thing. I tend to keep on training and going to different trainings and this kind of thing because I'm always curious to learn more. And I think it was a couple of years ago I went to to do a certificate in evidence-based hypnotherapy practice in cognitive behavioral hypnosis, I think they called it. But it's basically a sort of CBT-grounded hypnosis school. And they were rolling out all manner of statistics about things. Mm -hmm. And they rolled out this statistic that said, after three years of working with clients, therapists do not really get any better or more effective in getting results. It's mm -hmm. like that's the end of their learning curve. So what they were kind of saying is like after about three years of doing this, you're going to be as good as you as you are, really. That's as good as it's going to get. And I thought to myself, I've been, <laughs> I've been doing this for years, and I feel like I'm learning all the time. Right, I'm getting yeah. better all the time. But, of course, the thing that the, the research was conducted with people who'd been taught to follow protocols rigidly. Now, of course – there's going to be a, a drop off if all you're doing is running the same protocol over and over and over. I can imagine that probably after three years, you're probably about as good as you're going to get at running that specific protocol. Yeah, you're becoming an expert at that specific process as opposed to being, let's call it client-centered, right. yeah. Right. So so I can get that, they, you know, that would be, you'd reach the end of the track there. But of course, this is a certificate in evidence-based hypnotherapy practice. So if you deviate, if you experiment, if you explore, that's not evidence-based mm -hmm. anymore. So it really struck me as to how stifling being caught up in that approach might be. Well, and let's chat about that because there there is a trend right now of this dialogue of that it has to be evidence based, which even that is a relatively loosely you know formed word. That okay, so here's this research around mindfulness, and because I'm bringing a mindfulness theme into my session, therefore now I'm evidence based. Yet find any data, and yes. I love the anecdote that when you gather a lot of anecdotes, what happens? Well, it becomes evidence over time. And we don't have any statistical data around, I love to see the clinical trial of a whole bunch of people with their feet stuck to the floor and not finding their name for the phone. But we can look at these magical moments and see that, yes, we are producing that. So what, what do you think that balances between that, right. yes, grounded in research versus that flow state of here's what the client said, here's how I fed back that that beautiful term from before, the physiological, what was that again? How he described oh, it? It was brilliant. Rewind the audio, it was in there. Okay. <laughs> but th this balance between the research base versus now here's something purely experiential and let's call it environmental based on what's actually happening in that space. Right. I think the problem comes about People don't see that there's a difference between science on the one hand and art and craft on the other hand. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm all up for research. I love science. I love all that stuff. To me, the role of science for the clinician or the practitioner who is an artist slash craftsperson 
the relevance is, is you get stuff that feeds in that you can make use of. Mm-hmm. Now, imagine somebody suggesting there was an evidence-based protocol for winning tennis matches. We'd go, don't be ridiculous. There can't be an evidence-based protocol. It might be that science could produce some insight into more effective ways of training. Mm-hmm. So like you look, look in sports, you get sports science, you know, it starts to inform training programs that people can use to develop their art and craft better. But even the exception to the rule, I think it was in the strength world, Joe DeFranco talking about how every bit of physiological research suggests that pushing the heavy combine should make the football player slower. But he goes, right. I've got thousands of black and white composition notebooks with time trials that say otherwise. You know, in right. the clinic on paper, it doesn't make sense, but in practical ability, here's how it does. Right. And the latter, what he's suggesting is true science rather mm. than ra- rather than science culture based theorizing. Yeah. Because a lot of the people, this is another problem. You see, you've got science and then you've got craft and practice, but you've also got religion. And a lot of people who believe they're scientists or they're scientifically minded are actually, I believe, more religiously minded. And their dogma is science culture. So somebody can be in love with science culture, but not think very scientifically Mm. or not act very scientifically. Because science is really about gathering evidence and looking at evidence. It's not about going, well, we actually know how things are. So we're going to theorize about what should be based. That isn't really science. So people can do like religious thinking that sounds very sciencey. So this is this is my 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 argument on this. I think our goal ultimately also the, the goal of science is to find out what is. Mm-hmm. It's not to make differences in the world. That's not what science is about. That is what craft is about. That is what action, that is what being a practitioner is about. It's about getting results. Science doesn't strive to get results. It's, it strives to uncover truths. It's a different process. So to take something that's about finding out truth and try to apply it to getting results is a mistake. It's taking something from a category it doesn't belong in. So I think, I think it's great to do evidence. I think evidence-informed yes. is, is probably useful, but evidence-based is too binding. It's trying to say, well, this worked in an experiment, which was about finding out truth. But now we need to creatively get a result with this individual, not with some generalized subset. So it, I, I, it goes I, back to something you mentioned earlier that, you know, they're coming in and my, my mindset is similar that as soon as they're reaching out to me, they're identifying here is this trance state that they're currently inside of that because they're seeking a service to help resolve it, they're identifying this already doesn't work for me. Mm. Therefore, it's our mutual responsibility to further break that thing that's already broken and use mm. that as the leverage point to go, here's another way, here's another experience. So I'd share a similar style at times of, you know, again, breaking the phenomenon to go, well, that was only because you wrapped your mind around that idea. The mm. same as what's different now when you get in that car and you're behind the wheel. Mm. Oh, yeah, I, I know I can drive. Good. Mm. I got time. Let's go outside, which was Mm. a very interesting thing last week. (laughs) But to look at, you know, again, that I love that mindset of the informing of the process to go, here's where we can use it to a certain extent. But at the same time, that mindset of delivering, let's call it out, the hypnotic experience. Mm. That's part of their back to the scientific mindset. That's why that person in some way is reaching out to a person who holds on to that role, that title of hypnotist. That's Mm. part of that perceived dialogue. 
Right. Yeah. And also that's, that's the thing. If someone is reaching out to you because you're labeled a hypnotist or a hypnotherapist, they're not looking for CBT. They're not looking for science probably. I mean, sometimes you can weave that into the mix. I'm happy right. to bring scientific frames if I think that's going to be useful for people. But often they've already bought into a non-scientific version of things anyway. Mm, yeah. So, you know, to me, that seems like that's the, the smart thing to leverage. I think the other thing about science is if we decide that the protocol is correct and right, then the protocol becomes the thing that we follow and not the client. And I've seen this a lot because with working with the organization Rock to Recovery UK, which I've worked with for two years up until January, everybody we see, everybody has been, or almost everybody has been through the official military recovery units before they got medically discharged, you know, or as they were being medically discharged and or been through the evidence-based protocols prescribed by the National Health Service in the UK, which are all EMDR. And I'm not looking at EMDR mm. because I think EMDR has a lot of value within it. But I think when people are operating from rigid protocols and not really paying attention to how the client is responding, problems come about. So basically, everybody that we work with almost has largely been failed by evidence-based practice. But at the same time, I'm sure there are people who go through that program and yeah. they see results to say that, well, here's why we have options. Here's why there's two right. sides of this. Right. And, and so I'm not, you know, I wouldn't hold that up as evidence that evidence-based practice is not good. Yeah. <laughs> We're just going to see the people that it didn't help. But what that means is they want something very different from us. And what they get from us is flexibility. What they get is something very personally tailored. You know, Rock to Recovery build themselves as the non-clinical alternative. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what we do. So we will use anything. I say we, I'm not currently, I just stepped back from this recently. But, you know, whilst, whilst there and the, the team that is still there, we'll use anything creatively that makes a difference. And it's about paying attention to difference that's being made. Is it making a positive difference? Yes, let's do more. Do we need to change direction with this particular client? Do something different? Yeah, you know, and, and we've, we've done all sorts of things. Will we use anything from the world of hypnosis, therapy, voodoo, <laughs> tales of, of Zen masters, or even getting someone a dog, which we did recently, which nice. was transformative <laughs> for this person. But it was clear because the, the best time this guy had had in his life was when he was training a dog. He really enjoyed training dogs. It gave him focus. It gave him direction in life. And this is somebody who'd ended up being basically largely a shut-in, a recluse. So we got him a difficult dog to train mm -hmm. to get him back out, going out in the world, training the dog, having a focus, a sense of direction in his life. You know, there was no evidence-based protocol. It's just that he talked so much about there seemed to be so much resource attached with his time training dogs that it just made sense. Well, we'll get the guy a dog. That's going to help, right? Yeah. So, you know, being able to just literally – find out what's going to work for this client and tune into that, I think is, is a powerful thing. And in the mix, there might be certain things that have come from experimentation and experimental frameworks to go, well, here's an idea to try. Mm -hmm. 
So I like the idea of evidence informed rather than evidence based. Yeah. And I tell you what, before we before we begin to wrap it up, I'd ask you a little bit more of a personal question, which comes to you brought up here something that you had been doing for a number of years and then decided to step away from it. And I'd imagine here's a thing that was working rather well for you, yet you saw other opportunities to follow. How do you how do you go about making that decision as to where that next step takes you? Well, I got into doing that work because a friend of mine who's a long-term friend of mine had been asking me for literally years to come and work with their team. And I always had other things going on. And I, when, I, when he originally asked, I was going off traveling around the world. I said, look, I'm going traveling around the world for a year with my family. So no, that's not going to happen. But when we got back and I decided I would do it, I would go and I would do this because I thought it would be an interesting thing to do. It would give me the opportunity to explore with a different client base where I'm not framed as a hypnotist. Right, up front. Yeah. Right, how do I get to use my skills when I don't have that framing? And that was an interesting thing because it changes a lot. So for me, that was an interesting thing to do developmentally and brought new challenges from which I grew. And then there was a certain point, and I'm purely selfish with this, it was difficult to stop doing that work. My own growth curve, I think, had, I had stopped paying so many dividends. You know, the 80-20 principle, mm-hmm. I got my 80% gains from my 20% work. And it was starting to become dominant and taking over a lot of bandwidth for me. It was difficult to leave because it's valuable work. There's a lot of people in need there. And the organization I'm working with who keep good records and have an uncommonly good, have been externally audited because we're using voodoo, basically. The funders insisted we were externally audited by a a team comprising a clinical psychologist and psychiatrist who were blown away by the fact that we were getting results way above what we should have been getting statistically. So I'm aware it was valuable work, but I also was aware that it was it stopped being aligned with the direction of travel for myself and my family and what we want to create out there in the wider world. And it was taking up too much of my bandwidth. So it was a hard decision to come to, but I decided I would step back for a while and I'm still technically stepping back at the moment. And once I got some other things in place, I may start to do maybe a day or two a week back there or or maybe not. I don't know. We'll see how it unfolds. But for me, I'm constantly evaluating what it is that I'm creating mm-hmm. in the world for myself, yeah. my family. I became a hypnotist and a hypnotherapist for a time within a broader context of my life, which was about moving my life forward and engaging generatively with the world. I didn't get into to it to help people as such. I got into it because it was fascinating to me. And I've had an interest since I was 19 on how do you do life better? Mm-hmm. How do you create more of what you want in the world in terms of fulfillment, reward, this kind of thing? So that's where my heart really lies. So I've I've sort of shifted back towards that. There's some business projects I want to get realized, but also there's a broader system of thought and thinking and method that I've been putting together for literally years, which is more about, I don't know what you might call creation dynamics, creating what you want in the world, which starts with as the subtitle of my YouTube channel goes, use your mind to shape your life. I'm talking about moving our own minds to actually start generating the effects we want to generate out there in the broader world. That's what really interests me. And 
it has so many parallels with hypnosis and hypnosis informs it and hypnosis is a, a huge part of that but it for me hypnosis sits within that yeah it's a related thing and i wanted to get out of being focused on working with these individuals with very challenging circumstances to stepping right back back fully into myself as a creative force in my own life and now i'm doing i'm engaging back more into doing coaching work with people who are looking to become creative forces in their own lives as well generating the kind of results that they want to generate habitually in terms of fulfillment and reward and that's kind of what i'm into where my developmental edge is and where i want to spend my precious energy because yeah. it's a finite quantity and i want to use it to shape my life as i wish it to be what's well, that beautiful discovery that just because you're good at something doesn't mean you have to do that exact thing the rest of right. your life and and to right. harness here's the experiences that help to create here's the learning the advancement of your own methods that came from doing that yet to go yeah but i think it can go to this other audience now and that's what excites me then yes. i think a lot, i meet a lot of people who even are successful in the work that they do but that level of comfort is often that biggest danger rather right. than going, well, let me test this out, see what happens. If it goes, fantastic. If not, let's go inside of that experience. What will that inform me? Let's use all these hypnotic principles back upon ourselves to go, well, what can I now turn this into? What can I now use this for? Right. And, and that's, you know, what you're saying there is so resonant with where I've been at recently. It's, it's a huge realization for me that part of my unconscious programming, the unconscious hypnotic trance that I've been living through is the idea that got installed in me when I was young that I needed to be some kind of professional. I have a profession, a, a craft that I do. And a number of years ago, I had a mentor of mine say to me, he said, stop being a working class hero and start being the creative genius that you are. Nice. And at the time, I, I was like, I, he saw something I couldn't see in myself. And I, and I sort of said to him, I said, look, I'm not that much of a working class hero. I'm actually quite a lazy guy. And, but he was talking about paradigms. And, <laughs> and I was operating from this paradigm of like, I've got to have a profession. I am a professional ex. I'm a professional coach. I'm a professional change worker. I'm a professional hypnotherapist. Instead of thinking in terms of actually, what are the differences that I want to create in the world? Mm -hmm. You know, in terms of, of the broader world out there and my own, the life within my family and this kind of thing. And what, what is it that I want to bring into the world that wasn't there before? And that's the real shift that's happened for me is, is grounding fully in this idea that I'm here to bring difference into the world in a variety of different ways rather than to be a hypnotherapist or a coach or a trainer or a whatever so that's that's the kind of big shift and that point that you made about like what you're good at isn't necessarily what you ought to be doing you know i have been caught in the, the fact that i have got uncommonly good results doing change work for the last few years particularly this particularly shows up within the the rocks recovery context because every single client is followed up by the organization and if you don't get good results you don't stay working with the organization so so I know I'm good at doing that, but it isn't really where my heart lies. Yeah. And that's the, that was the thing. It's moving to that point of going, actually, I'm better off doing something that I might not even be as good at. But it's where my own developmental edge lies. It's where my passion lies to discover more. So as a creator in my own life, I have a track record of success. But it's an area where I have so much more to learn and I'm constantly up in the game. So I have a fresh level of enthusiasm for that. 
So that's totally where I'm at right now. Beautiful. James, this has been fantastic. Yeah, it's really good to connect because yeah. we've never really had the opportunity I know, to have right? more. That was the comment of going, how have we not talked? I know we've been around each other, but it's where yeah. my favorite conversations in the series have been the ones where this is the first time actually chatting right. after nerding about nerding out about YouTube and Facebook before we hit record here. Yeah. Uh, I know you're going to be at HypnoThoughts Live 2019. What's the, what's the presentation that you're doing there? I'm actually doing two presentations there. I'm doing one on nonverbal suggestion. Mm-hmm. And the other one is on hypnotic improvisation. So having thought about, well, what is it that I think that I, I'm not saying I uniquely bring, but what are the areas that I think I have, I tend to lean into more than a lot of other trainers is definitely the improvisation side and the nonverbal suggestion side. So I decided I would specialize on those. And my post-conference workshop is on both of those, nice. hypnotic improvisation and nonverbal suggestion. And the website they can check out is Hypnosis Without Trance. What's the extension off that? That's a .com, hypnosiswithouttrance.com. So, yeah, I, I need to update the events page on there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right there with you on that problem. <laughs> yeah. And what's the – we'll link to everything over in the show notes at worksmarthypnosis.com. You mentioned your YouTube channel there a couple of times. Where should people yeah. go to check that out? So my YouTube channel is called James Trip Chaos Wave. Nice which has a whole story in and of itself. The subtitle of the channel is Using Your Mind to Shape Your Life. So there's a lot on hypnosis, NLP, various other mind tech things. Originally, it was a strict hypnosis channel, but it's evolved across time and it's going to continue to evolve because I've got some really cool new stuff in the pipeline that's going to be coming through there. Awesome. Yeah, so we'll put uh, links to everything in the show notes over at worksmarthypnosis.com. James, any final words before we wrap it up? No, really enjoyed this. So thank you for having me on here, Jason. And I look forward to seeing anyone who's at Hypno Thoughts and having conversations. And we'll get to have a deeper conversation still, I think, at Hypno Thoughts. Jason Lynette here once again. And as always, thank you so much for interacting with this program, for leaving your reviews online, for especially sharing this one on your social media streams, whether it's the podcast, whether it's the video broadcast of it too. Once again, head over to worksmarthypnosis.com. Find the episode associated with this release. That's where you can find all the links to keep up with James, subscribe to his YouTube channel, learn about the upcoming training events. And while you're there too, check out Hypnotic Business Systems. The all-access pass to my hypnosis business training library. Hey, it's Netflix for your hypnosis business. It's the roadmap to create your own success, grow your own passion, and help a whole lot of people along the way. Check that out, hypnoticbusinesssystems.com. See you all soon. Thanks for listening to the Work Smart Hypnosis Podcast at worksmarthypnosis.com. 